Well, I was really blessed last week by Pastor Steve's message uh, about the new heaven and the new earth, our glorious future. I think we, we don't hear enough about the glorious future of the people of God, and I was, so I was so blessed to have a, a message dedicated to that. And it really got me thinking uh, you know, what, about heaven, and I, I thought, well, what, what is the best part of the new heaven and the new earth? You know, is it the reunion with, all, with loved ones? Is it uh, getting to see all the brokenness fixed? Is it, you know, what, what is the best part? And as I thought about it, I, re- I realized, you know, the very best part of the new heaven and the new earth is that we will get to be with God. God himself is going to be present with no barriers, no distance, no hindrances between us and God, and that is actually the very best part of heaven. In fact, all the other good stuff about the new heaven and the new earth is because he's going to be present, because he's going to be close. All of our problems are going to be over. All of our tears will be dried, as the scripture says, uh, because he's going to be there. The injustices that oppress us from the outside, that crush us and trample on us, all of those are going to be overturned and reversed, uh, and justice is going to be, will prevail because he's going to be there in person, ruling and reigning over all things. That's, that's what is going to make uh, injustice, uh, uh, that, that's what's going to conquer injustice. There's this great image in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8, and it's repeated in, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 5, where it talks about how, how uh, Jesus, when he's here, he's going to slay his enemies with the breath of his mouth. The sword's going to come out of his mouth and slay his enemies. Uh, but it's not just going to be the injustice we see outside of us. It's also going to be the justice, injustice we see inside of us that's uh, going to be taken care of. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it talks about how uh, we're going to finally be like him all of that inability that we sense inside of ourselves to truly love one another and truly love him with all of our heart, mind, and soul, all of that is going to vanish and be taken care of because, according to this, uh, chap- this verse, we're going to be seeing him, we're going to be present with him, we're going to see him face to face. It's going to be gazing into the eyes of Jesus that will change us completely and fully on the inside. And so all of that darkness that we sense inside of us Will, will finally be taken care of. At first, Peter chapter 1, verse 13, talks about how all the graces uh, that we're longing for and waiting for are going to come when Jesus appears. All of the graces, all of the inheritance, and all of the amazing things that go along with the inheritance. And, and it's because we find out that he himself is the inheritance. So praise God. I, 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 think, I think I should be hearing a few more amens, you guys, because I'm I'm, 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 I'm saying some good news here. This is really good news, all right? Uh, so God being with us, that is going to be the glorious solution to all things. And uh, I, I'm wondering, does anyone know the Hebrew word for, uh, the Hebrew word for God with us? Emmanuel. Okay, most of us, most of us know that. Emmanuel. Um, and, uh, and so I'm going to get into that uh, today, this idea of God being with us, because of course that is, uh, what, does anyone know when, anyone remember when Jesus received that name, that, that title? Anybody remember in the story 
of, of Jesus when, when he received that name and that title? It was, it was, it was right at the beginning. It was, it was uh, in, in the prophecy about, his, one of the prophecies about his birth. We see it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 13. And in that passage, we find out, uh, it's prophesied that he is, he's going to have the name Emmanuel, God, with us. Uh, and now I, what I, what I want to do today, though, that is a prophecy from the Old Testament. And what I'm going to do today is actually go back to that original prophecy from hundreds of years before Jesus and, and find out a little bit more about what was going on in that situation. Uh, and and that, I think that's going to shed a lot of light into Jesus being with us now, God being with us through Jesus. So if you could turn with me to Isaiah chapter uh, 7. It comes from Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm going to read from the same version that's in front of you in the, in the pew version. And you can either, you know, you got on your phone or there's uh, plenty of copies for everybody. So we could turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. All right. <clears throat> so Isaiah chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 1. When Ahaz, king of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and the people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Isn't that a powerful image? Idea People's hearts just shaking like uh, you've ever spent time just looking at how the wind shakes the trees. That's what was happening inside of people. And no wonder these two neighboring countries, one is uh, basically close to what's modern-day Syria, Aram, and uh, the other is uh, what is, was northern Israel. They'd already broken away from the southern kingdom, had, had fallen away from God, weren't following God, worshiping idols. And these uh, two kingdoms joined forces, allied themselves to come against the southern kingdom of Judah. And of course, people's hearts were shaking like uh, trees being shaken by the wind. This, is, uh, this happened about the year 735, 734 BC, uh, so 730 some years before the birth of Christ. And these two kingdoms, we know from uh, history, they allied themselves at this time because they were afraid Judah was going to ally itself to the really scary superpower in the area the Assyrian Empire. And so out of their fear, they joined forces and came up against uh, the capital of Judah in Jerusalem and uh, were trying to lay siege to it and try to bring it under their dominion and hopefully prevent this alliance with Assyria. That's kind of the historical background. So let's jump back into verse 3. When the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub, and meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, take care, keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. 
I, I don't know about you, but if, if, I, if I knew enemies were doing, trying to do that to me, let us invade, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, put somebody else in charge, I don't know about you, but my heart would be quaking with fear as, all, as, as well. But then, verse 7, yet, there's always a yet in the Lord's way of running things. There's always a yet. Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, oh, oh, I, I will not ask. I, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, Ahaz, King Ahaz here, he was quoting from Deuteronomy where it says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And he was thinking he was being all holy by doing this. Uh, the, what Ahaz failed to understand in the situation was the, the reason God had told the Israelites hundreds of years before this, don't ask, put the Lord your God to the test, is because uh, when they, they had been asking for a sign at one point, and it was out of unbelief. They, they didn't really believe God was going to take care of them. So they were saying, well, they're kind of saying to God, prove it, prove it, God. And, uh, and that's why God at that time said, don't put the Lord your God to, it, to the test. But here, uh, God wants King Ahaz to ask for a sign, not, as a, not because Ahaz, uh, as an expression of unbelief, but actually as an expression of belief. And so... Here, God himself wants to be asked for a sign. Uh, So just file that away. Sometimes the Lord wants you to ask the Lord for a sign. Then uh, then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. All right, and that is where we get the prophecy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, about uh, this idea of Emmanuel, this virgin birth, and the name Emmanuel. That's where it, it comes from. This is the context. Now, historically, we don't know what happened to this original virgin birth and the son. There's no other record. There's no other information about this child that was born of a virgin birth uh, in the year 734, 735 BC. So, uh, unfortunately, there's 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 not much more that we can preach about that. But I, I what I what I want to focus on specifically is. What, what, what was that sign intended to do? What was, what was the point of that sign? Well, you see, God wanted, uh, yeah, God wanted King Ahaz and the people of Judah to respond to their situation in several ways. And I want you to already to be thinking about how does God want me to respond when threats are coming against me? Has anyone faced threats of any kind Recently, I don't just mean like a neighbor calling you up saying, I'm going to kill your dog. I mean, like dark, oppressive situations. 
have uh, coming against you? Any, anyone here faced some threats of late? Okay, a few of you have. All right. So uh, King, King Ahaz and Judah, they were intended by God to respond to these threats in certain ways. First of all, they, God wanted them to respond with faith. All right, verse 9 has this expression, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. All right, and, and the Lord has the same intention for us, I would argue. He wants them to respond, wants us to respond in faith. Uh, and then, also, I'm, I'm, I'm using the New American Standard Version here because the wording of it's a, it's a little more literal from the original Hebrew. Be calm, have no fear, and don't be faint-hearted. Be calm, have no fear, and don't be faint-hearted. I don't know about you, but uh, it, 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 it came as sort of a thundering revelation that I could actually respond to hard situations with calm, without fear, and without a faint, faintness of heart. And you can too. It's actually possible to respond to threats calmly, with no fear, and without being faint-hearted. And another, a final way that God wanted them to respond was to see the situation from God's perspective. What does God call these two armies, these two nations joining forces to come against Jerusalem? He calls them smoldering stubs of firewood. All right, a smoldering stub of firewood. Yeah, there's a little bit of life in it, uh, but it's, it's basically a smoldering stub. There's, it's this dying, almost dead, little bit of coal that, uh, uh, that's, that's coming against you. That's all it is. Uh, and believe it or not, the threats that you face, as scary as they are, as difficult as they are, as painful as they, uh, as much pain as they might threaten in your life, they're actually also just smoldering stubs of firewood. Believe it or not. And so the virgin birth in this situation in Isaiah's day was intended to be a sign of a bigger miracle that was coming. There was going to be the smaller miracle of a virgin birth, uh, and then the, that, was to, that was to be a sign that soon there was going to be a much bigger miracle, which was going to be the defeat of these enemies. So they would no longer be a problem to threaten Jerusalem. Uh, and, and so that's, that's kind of basically what's happening here in this situation in Isaiah's time. This is basically an example of a principle that you see throughout Scripture. Uh, I think it's best articulated in Psalm 31, verse 21, where it says, God, you make your loving kindness appear marvelous to me in a besieged city. Okay, so Jerusalem was being besieged at this point. There's two armies coming against them. They were laying siege to them. And when, uh, of course, we, we, we don't have much understanding these days of what, that is, what a siege is like, but in a siege, uh, a city might be completely surrounded and there's no food coming in, no food going out, no water coming in, no water going out. There's no messages coming in, messages going out. The people are isolated and they're left to starve until they surrender. And uh, it's a, a, sieges are some of the most gruesome, brutal parts of any war. Uh, and, and yet, there's this idea that runs, runs throughout Scripture that in, the, in a besieged city, in the middle of the darkness and the threat, when there's really kind of one inevitable end, it's either surrender to the enemy or die, 
somehow God miraculously makes his loving kindness appear marvelous in our eyes. God actually drops down into, he sort of like parachutes down into the depth of our darkness, the depth of our situation, and he brings this sign that makes us realize, God, your loving kindness is actually marvelous to me. Here's the thing. This usually happens before the armies are defeated, before, it, before we see the armies disappear, and it still looks like you know, we can still go out and look outside in the battlements and say, uh, the armies are still there, okay? But God will often drop some kind of sign into our lives. There's some little miracle that shows us there's a bigger miracle coming. Does that principle make sense? To people? Okay. So, uh, and one, one thing I want to I say about this particular sign um, when God really, really wants us to know how uh, serious He is about following through on His promise, He puts His name on something. He puts His name on something. And in this case, He put His name. Emmanuel, God is with us on something. So uh, frequently we see this throughout Scripture. Uh, God will bring some kind of promise or assurance and he'll add his name to it. Like God is the, is the provider. God is the victory. God is the healer. He'll add his name to it to show I'm really serious about getting this done. And what's interesting about this is, you know, God could have given a lot of other names in this situation. And in fact, if I were to pick a name, I would have wanted something like God is victor or God is king or God is triumphant. I would have wanted one of those names uh, if I was in this situation. And instead, God picked this name, Emmanuel. God is with us. And first, that was supposed to be enough for the people of Jerusalem to give them faith, to give them inner encouragement that God was going to take care of this problem, that God was going to make his loving kindness marvelous in their eyes. And, and, uh, and now we shouldn't be surprised that God thought this was going to be enough. We shouldn't be surprised because, you know, a lot of times we're saying, I, I want answers, I want fixes, I want solutions, uh, I, want, I want this army to be gone. That's what I, what I really need more than anything else. But if you think about it with me for a minute, I've lost count of the number of stories, number of testimonies, where somebody says, you know, it, it wasn't so much that I got that solution or I got that fix or I got that answer. It, what, what, I, what I got the most, what comforted me the most was the realization that God was with me. That, that's what, and, and think about your own life. And many of you, I know, have, many of you in this very room have told me stories from your own life where you realized at some point yeah, the most comforting, most helpful thing of all was to realize that God is with me. That's the best thing that could have happened. And, and we really shouldn't be surprised by, by this because, you know, the Old Testament is full of this theme of God being with us and how that's the very best thing that can happen to us. Uh, for example, um, Psalm uh, 73, verse 28, the psalmist, he's, he's filled with uh, bitterness. He's filled with resentment about his situation. He is 
angry at God. Uh, he, he says he's basically like a brute beast before God. He can't even talk to God. He's so mad at God. Uh, and and, and he's, he basically comes from this jealousy he has uh, to uh, people around him that have it all better, the people who aren't following God. It seems like everything's better for them. But he concludes the psalm this way. He says, your nearness is my good. The very best thing is the nearness of God. That's what he finally comes to realize. Or Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist says, uh, in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Where is the fullness of joy? Is it in a trip to Disneyland? Is it a, the best paid-for vacation you could ever imagine? The fullness of joy is in the presence of God himself. How, how do you top that? How do you get better than that? Psalm 69, verse 18, the psalmist is in the, the, the most dire straits, the most difficult circumstance you can possibly imagine. He feels like he's suffocating. He feels like he's drowning. He feels completely overwhelmed and crushed by his circumstances. And in the middle of that psalm, psalm verse 18, he says this, Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. He could, he, he could pray for lots of other things, but the essence of his prayer is God, draw near. That's what I need more than anything else, is for God to draw near. And then, of course, there's the most famous, uh, you know, the, probably the most well-loved hymn of, the, uh, of ever, Psalm 23, uh, verse 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear evil. Why? It's because you're with me. That's why he doesn't fear death. It's not... It's not because the threat is low. It's not because uh, there's no dangers about. It's because God is with him. That's why he doesn't fear death. It's the nearness of God. So it also shouldn't surprise us that the New Testament answer to our problems is the same, except on steroids. <clears throat> you see, we are like King Ahaz, we, uh, we, God, um, we, we, we want to give away to fear. We, many of us, and I know I'm very much, this is my life too, when, when I hear news of danger and threat, my heart quakes like trees blowing in the wind. And I, I know a few of you from your stories that sometimes you're like that too. Um. <clears throat> And what's worse about our situation than it was about King Ahaz, though, is that we, King Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem, weren't aware of their bigger threats. Now, you might think, well, what's a bigger threat than two armies joining forces and coming against me? Well, according to the New Testament, the bigger threat we have in our life is sin. First uh, Peter chapter 2 describes sin as waging war not just against our bodies, but waging war against our souls. And what we also know from Scripture is that sin isn't just waging war against our souls. Sin is so destructive, it actually separates us from the very source of life, God himself, and not just for a little bit, it can potentially separate us from him forever. And so that's why it also describes sin as, as the, it says, the wages of sin is death. And, uh, and then it also talks about sin enslaving us. So even if we wanted 
sin not to be in our, a problem in our life. Sin has so much uh, control in our life that it orders us about like we were slaves. And so our situation, the threats we face, are far worse than what King Ahaz was aware of. Now, sin faced him too, but he, he didn't, before Jesus came, there wasn't the full awareness of the depth and horror and atrocity of, of sin. And so our situation in many ways is worse. But it is possible in the face of that to respond like God wanted King Ahaz in Jerusalem to respond. We, it is possible to respond with faith. It is possible to be calm, have no fear, and not be faint-hearted. It is possible to see things from God's perspective, to see our enemies of sin and death and enslavement as mere smoldering stubs of firewood. You see, God wants to show us how he will one day completely defeat these enemies once and for all. He wants us to be able to be calm, have no fear, and not be faint-hearted, even though we shake like trees. In our hearts shake like trees in response to this. He wants us to have a response of faith. And like in King Ahaz's situation, there is a virgin birth, a small miracle. I mean, it's pretty big. I wouldn't be able to fabricate that. But it's a smaller miracle in that is preparing us for is a sign that guarantees a much bigger miracle that's coming. And so like in King Ahaz's situation, 735 734 BC, the best way to show us that God is with us is to do something that didn't even happen in King Ahaz's situation, which is that God would come himself. You guys, this is what Christmas is all about. Christmas, it's really cool that we get reunited with loved ones. It's really cool there's gift exchanges. It's really cool that we retell cool stories about shepherds and angels and all. That's, that's really fun. But the reason Christmas is so revolutionary, the reason it should complete like an earthquake that completely levels everything, the reason why Christmas is so astounding is because it shows us God is giving us a sign of a much bigger victory to come, and that sign is him coming himself. What is a better way to say, I am with you, than to, for him to come himself? That's what the, we call it the incarnation, when God gave up his, uh, his, his divine status, humbled himself, and became one of us, emptied himself and joined us here on earth, ate our bread, uh, drank our water, uh, walked in our shoes, felt everything we've ever felt, experienced everything we've ever experienced, and finally humbled himself so much that he, he actually identified with our own sin, took the sin upon himself, died for our sin, died in our place, and then rose again forever. So... <clears throat> This is how 
God makes his loving kindness appear marvelous to us when we are in a besieged city. You and I are, in a, are besieged by our sins. You and I are besieged by the threat of eternal death and hell that that, 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 that comes with. We are, uh, we are threatened and besieged by the enslavement of sin and all the darkness that that means and all the injustice that is unleashed upon the world and all the injustice that's unleashed inside of us. But God has made his loving kindness appear marvelous to us in that besieged city. We can go out and look over the edge of the, the, the wall and say, oh, but that army is still there. But he has given us himself through the virgin birth and said, God is with you. So my exhortation, my urge to you this morning, for this Christmas season, cling to the incarnation as the guarantee of the final victory that's going to come. Those armies that we see over the edge of the, of the wall will be defeated. We will walk in that glorious victory. Cling to the incarnation. Use the reality of it, that Jesus came in history, actual history, in actual flesh and blood. Use that to face down those threats, to say to those threats. I'm, I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to be worried. I'm going to be calm. I'm going to be peaceful. I'm not going to be faint-hearted because God himself has come to earth and is with us. Cling to it. So there, there's, there's one other thing that's even greater than God showing his loving kindness to us in a besieged city by becoming one of us. There's, even, there's, there's something even greater. And as the worship team could come on up, uh, I'm going to tell you what that is next week, my last sermon, on Christmas Day. <clears throat> That'll be our Christmas present to unwrap, is the one thing that's even greater than God showing his loving kindness to us by becoming one of us. Let's. The work on earth is done. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you for giving us your Son. Thank you for leaving your Spirit here on earth until this work is done. Oh, God. We are humbled before you. Oh, Lord, one day, by your grace, we will get to see your face. And to guarantee that, Lord, you've given us your son, born as a child. As we, say, as we remember 2,000 years ago, you came in history, in the flesh. Oh, Lord. Our hearts are open to you. Now may you go with the face of the Lord Jesus Christ fixed in your imagination as your eternal hope and your eternal source of joy under the approval of the Almighty Father. 
against whom all your threats are only mere stubs of firewood. And in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, who communicates the presence of God to us now and always. Go, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 And Merry Christmas.